This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, religion, and all the things with me, Adam Smith. The recent murder of Tyree Nichols at the hands, feet, and batons of five Memphis police officers ignites conversations about the foundational roots of policing, and if it is even possible to reform a system that was created to protect and serve the few from the many. Today, we talk policing, defunding, and reimagining a system where all members of the public feel and are safe with Dr. Timothy Berry. Dr. Berry is Interim Associate Vice President for Faculty Affairs and Equity Initiatives at Minnesota State University. Prior to his current role, he served as Dean for the School of Urban Education at Metropolitan State University. He speaks in schools, universities, conferences, businesses, and churches to share his insights and research surrounding race, literacy, and the arts. Timothy is an award-winning composer, singer, actor, and percussionist, performing a variety of music genres, including his soul drum series, which stems from West African, Afro-Cuban, and African-American music traditions. Dr. Barry, welcome. Thank you very much. It's, it's always good to be with you, brother. Always good. Um, I really appreciate your time. Looking forward to kind of getting uncomfortable with you, talking about some of the issues related to policing in our country. We have just experienced, you know, as another guy from the Twin Cities, we've walked through uprisings related to George and Amir and Dante and Philando and still no change, right? Nothing has really changed. How are you feeling personally? Just how are you doing, especially as a guy from Minneapolis, the epicenter of change, where the uprisings happened and so many highly public reverberations happened? How are you feeling today, especially in light of the fact of now we have Tyree and we don't really see much change. Well, I always start with like how I feel. When you say how I feel, you know, I lean into my actual central nervous system and it, you know, I'm bothered. Uh, I'm bothered uh, as a black man um, by yet again, contemplating whether or not um, the next time could be me or my son or, somebody else I love or even somebody else in the community. And so uh, my heart is is always a little more um, impacted the more that these things continue to occur and the more that this country shows us what it thinks about Black bodies. And so, and at the same time, because I have a practice of you know, somatic exercise that's necessary to keep in the struggle, I'm breathing and I take a, a, an intentional breath to continue to speak sort of a truth 
and and also speak to the issue in ways that I think um, in my field, at, at least as an educator, are hopefully substantive for people to, to, to start to grapple with this um, in more sophisticated ways than currently we, I think, have been able to do as a collective. So that that's that's where I'm at and that's also where I'm sitting with this. Yeah. I mean, the hardest part, like you talked about more sophisticated ways, right? You continue to hear, well, you know, we can't defund the police. We we need to reform. We need more diverse police officers. We need more training. The part that drives me crazy is that those maniacs in Memphis who murdered that brother, they were all trained, right? I mean, it isn't like they didn't have training and reform and all the things. So for me, a lot of this centers on the historical roots of policing. And when people say we have to reform something, I don't know if we can reform something whose roots are grounded in doing exactly what policing does. So can you talk a little bit for us about some of the origins of policing, some of the histories of policing, and if you think as an institution, it is one that can be reformed, or is it something that just has to be reimagined? Hmm. I'll start with the last thing you said, and then I'll talk about why. And this is the, and I, I so appreciate this conversation because not only does the conversation have to be more um, sophisticated and more, more nuanced, we, we got to have a grown up conversation about this. So, anybody tuning in, this is the grown up conversation. And let me say again, it can't be reformed. And, and 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 so because if you think about training, they did exactly what they were trained to do. And re- reformation in terms of that kind of training, all they're doing is doubling down on more and more tactical skills necessary to abuse us. And so to me, I think about then, let's talk about the lineage and the connection of policing. You know, I do a presentation and I actually have artifacts one of the elders that I'm in the community with on time to time happens to be the Hall of Fame, you know, former Minnesota Viking, Alan Page, who who actually collects artifacts. And he, he gave me some insightful, you know, wisdom on how to think about that. He said, you know, the thing about artifacts is is, is the facts. The thing about looking at and, and, and examining an artifact is the fact. And so I have artifacts. And one that I use in a presentation I do on race and justice is a badge, but it's a, it's, and it's, and it's a, it's a five stars, the badge and the, and, but this badge says slave patrol, runaway slave patrol. And I, I just, I put that side by side with the current day uh, county deputy sheriff badge and you can pick any, you, you know, city of your choice, USA. And that shape is the same. So what we're talking about is an institution that never, ever, ever, basically disassociated itself from its origin in terms of modern policing only actually happening after emancipation, after the great migration. You didn't see quote unquote professional police forces until we started showing up in numbers, you know, in major metropolitan areas that grew into large cities and so forth. And then you have professional police forces. Think about Boston was one of the first places if you look at historically, that had a professional police force um, in terms of 
hiring people into quote unquote that profession with numbers growing, right? Um, we're not talking about just a, a law man or a law person in one. We're talking about an actual profession where many people were recruited. Um, and by the way, there's a lot of scholarship around who started showing up. It was ex, you know, Confederates initially. It was people who are Klan members all of a sudden showing up to, you know, sign up to become police officers. And so I think lastly about this notion of like what we can do. So let me let me say like reform is not my word, but it needs to be renegotiated. <laughs> it needs to be mm. renegotiated, right? Like what do we want to have as far as who will actually keep the quote unquote peace? Right. So to me, reform doesn't work and it hasn't worked because they're just learning and 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 and, and reifying what their training mm. has been. And it doesn't, and like you're saying, it doesn't matter. You can take all the Evian you want and dump it into the sewer. It's going to be crap water. That's right. Right? So you can take all the pure intended people that go into so-called law enforcement, no matter what their race is, and you dump them in the sewer, they're going to smell, taste, be sewer water. Because the entire profession has those roots in slave catching. And like you said so eloquently, not only Alan Page, for the people who are non-Minnesotans, Alan Page was the last defensive player to win MVP in the NFL, mm. Hall of mm -hmm. Famer. Okay. But Alan Page is a whole Supreme Court justice in the state of Minnesota. Right. So we ain't talking about some dude who's just a football player. That's right. We're Thank talking you. about Supreme Court justice, Alan Page, That's right? Right. right? As a bad boy. Yeah. And when he is talking about someone who is in that very system of criminal justice, ideas of artifacts being the facts, when people say, well, I've never heard of that. Well, what Dr. Barry is talking about is straight up facts that policing as we know it happened in northern cities, Boston, Chicago, as a result of the great migration of the 20s, most of it, right, where it was okay now, northern cities, we've got to control these folks that have come from the south to work in these different industries, Minneapolis being one of them, in the mills, right? And the stockyards of Chicago and in Boston and in Detroit, we've now got to control these people with some type of an invading force, right? And it is doing exactly what it was built to do. Timothy, you're in the Twin Cities. So the whole world watched issue two in Minneapolis, which was essentially, for people who don't know, issue two was on the ballot, and it was all about taking the police commission and replacing it with a public safety commission, yeah. right? Taking the Minneapolis Police Department and replacing it with a department of public safety that would be appointed by the city council, and then they would manage everything related to keeping the public safe, preventative, and interventative, right? All of these yeah. different things. And in the Twin Cities, in Minneapolis, issue two failed. And when you hear people talk about why they voted no, right? They said, well, we just needed more information. They didn't give us enough information on what it would look like. My biggest fear is if Minneapolis, in the wake of 
George and, well, not Amir at the point, but Dante and Philando and all of these cases and incidences. If Minneapolis said, you know what, we can't vote yes on a public safety commission, I don't have much hope for other cities, Memphis, Chicago, Detroit, Louisville, anywhere else in the country. What were, from your vantage point, what were the biggest challenges with issue two? Why didn't more people in the community, because this wasn't just the non-people of color citizens of Minneapolis who voted no. There was a lot of black and brown people who yes. said, well, what are we going to do without the police? Unpack that a little bit for us from your perspective. Right. So this is why this is the grown-up conversation. Anyway, because I think there's rhetoric that gets um, you know, blasted out and people get caught up on phraseology, if you will, around defunding the police and and taking that and interpreting, interpreting that sort of mantra as something that I don't even think that people who have this this position in terms of what the people I'm aware of locally are even saying. Um, so let me just start with that whole notion, and then I have some I have some ideas about why I think the struggle is in terms of why in Minneapolis it hasn't, um, you know, it didn't work and it probably won't work. You know how when people say Black Lives Matter, there's an inherent implied thing that's not actually said, but understood. And the word is to, T-O-O. Mm. When people say defund the police, what they're actually saying, there's an implied defund police brutality. Because it's the brutality that people have always been protesting. It is not the police per se, it is the brutality that too often disproportionately targets black bodies and abuses, kills, and maims them. Minneapolis has settled so many cases. We're not even talking about the ones where brothers and sisters end up dying. We're talking about even people who have been, um, and I'm saying literally, like put in wheelchairs or uh, harmed physically to the point where they can't work or and or just even abused. And so, you know, you, and you can do it. You, you can t look up the cases for yourself if anybody's interested. You know, it's this public record. And, 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 and you'll see so many cases of lawsuits that have been settled because of police brutality. So when I talk about this idea of language, what we're saying is it's the brutality that then needs to be defunded. And how? OK, there's some there's some ways. Right. That's why this 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 issue. Right. They were talking about. Having a like again that renegotiation. What is a different way for us to think about keeping the peace in our communities that don't rely on? And this is where I'm going to with policing a culture that's based on the beginning of catching Negroes and rounding them up. Some reasons that I heard um, again have to do with this idea that you know this interpretation that well funding means we're going to have less police and we're going to you know not use them and when we really do need them and what about crime and what about, and and again, the grown up conversation is, let's talk about the actual st statistics around crime. I know in Minnesota, one of the more <laughs> pervasive and, and critical issues we have around crime is actually domestic violence that men commit against their female partners and women. And that happens in rural and in suburbs, and it happens all over the state. And we're not talking about that crime. So when they say crime, what are they talking about? 
we're not talking about the fact that um, drug use and drug trafficking and all that is just as pervasive in these white rural suburban areas as it is anywhere else. So I, I, I don't buy that argument about, well, you know, what about all the crime or what about if we're going to think of think more uh, critically around coming back to an issue to or, or any other issue of, about um, municipalities and other ways to reimagine and or renegotiate policing, it is to have this conversation around what we really mean, those of us who who really are leaning into this issue, and there are a number of people who are doing this locally here, but uh, with with this conversation, because otherwise it gets reduced to whether or not you know we're going to have police or not. And then, of course, there are people who are uh, using this issue from the pro-protect the blue crowd who will suggest, well, see, we can't even hire police officers because we're just poor police officers. They're just getting beat up on. People are just, and so we can't. And then you look at the statistics, as again, in Minnesota and Minneapolis particularly, two things. Um, they don't have a critical shortage of police officers. They've hired more than they've ever had. And their fund, their budget is, is, is the biggest it's ever been. Well, and I, and I think that's the piece, right? Is there is so much... It's so pervasive that and occultured that they've taught us to fear. What are you going to do without us? It's almost like the Stockholm syndrome or this abusive relationship where, okay, I beat you up. But what are you going to do without us? Do you want them? Right? I mean, because the reality is you're talking about the brutality. I would even exercise to say the occupation. Right. That I heard a statistic at the time that Derek Chauvin murdered our brother George, that 94 percent of Minneapolis police officers did not live in the municipality, did not live in Minneapolis. And mm. I'm not even talking close. I'm talking about Anoka. And for people who don't know, I'm not talking about collar suburbs. I'm talking about collar, collar suburbs, like an hour away. And then you think about how schools are funded. Well, local property taxes. So we have occupiers in communities that have limited resources that are then getting paid those resources, and they are then buying homes and helping the preventative measures in communities 10, 15, 30, 50 miles away from the place that it is happening. And none of it is designed to prevent anything, right? At that time, I heard that Minneapolis's entire city budget, 85% of it was being spent on policing. And does it does it have the people feeling more safe. So it's very different for all of us who live in more of a suburban or a rural or an area. We live in a world where the police officer drives by and that person may live next door and they may still coach the little league. That's not the same thing as people coming to the inner city of Minneapolis or the city of Minneapolis like they are going to the penitentiary. It is like you're a correction officer. You are showing up in a place that isn't even your place to occupy and dominate the very people that live there. And I think one of the pieces that people miss is someone said to me, well, defund. I'm not talking about, I'm just talking about reinvesting those resources and things that are proven to work. 
What about if we use those resources and invested them in schools and after-school programs? What if we invested it in early childhood education, mental health resources? What if we invested it in homelessness and we invested in houselessness and ensured people had help? I just sat on a grand jury, Timothy, I tell you not. And the judge, we were, we were on grand jury for a month. And I can't tell you one case that I saw that wasn't about drug addiction and mental illness, period, right? right? And our solution is to just throw you in prison, yep. right? And then to add additional charges onto it in really menial and really crazy ways. So one of the things that even my mom said is when she because she's a senior citizen and she has one of those fallen and I can't get up buttons. And every time she pushes the button, the first person to show up is a police officer. Mm -hmm. She has told dispatch in her suburban city, I don't want the police officer to come. Just send EMS. Because for her, it makes her nervous. Why is a person with a gun and, and how, how is that helping anything? And if a 78-year-old German Czechoslovakian white woman feels aggressed and intimidated by a gun guy showing up to help her get up, then can you imagine? And she imagines it. So the whole defund movement is just really simply the thing you're talking about, renegotiation of the people's resources, because the people deserve to feel safe. In particular, I mean, even in the case of Dante, why is a person with a gun pulling somebody over in a tra traffic stop? Those are the kind of things that then immediately things escalate, right? Why is that happening? So one of the things that I wanted to pivot to, because the incident with Tyree Nichols, one of the things that's really interesting is so many people who are not people of color, non-Black folks, were like, I wonder what they're going to do now, because these were Black police. Talk about why people thought it would be different. Well, these are black police, so they're not going to harm. We're just going to recruit more minority police officers. Like somehow, like I said, dumping Perrier and Evian in the sewer is going to purify the sewer, right? So hmm. talk a little bit about that and talk about how one quote I, I heard and I repeated was people that think that Black police officers killing Tyree has nothing to do with racism and anti-Blackness, do not understand racism and do not understand anti-Blackness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a whole piece right there. You know, for me, um, thank you again uh, for this uh, entry point into another element that we need to um, have substantive conversations. And also we need to have educative conversations about, again, I'm trained as an educator first and foremost. And so I come from it with this idea of really thinking about, well, what is the foundation um, of these constructs around race? What are the, the different ways that, that our greatest thinkers and our, um, you know, and our, and our historians uh, tell us about when these kinds of conversations and or topics were broached in the past. And so it's not a new conversation around, well, can Black folk be, you know, um, do this against other Black folk? And then does that have anything to do with race or anti-Blackness and so forth? And the answer, quite simply, is yes, because race is made up. And just because you got Black skin doesn't mean you got Black consciousness. 
because that's the, the the construct is around cunts, you know. The, so 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 um, and, and that's where anti-blackness comes into it, as well as whiteness. As a black man, it's perfectly um, reasonable for somebody born in this settler <laughs> enterprise to have an anti-black position um, because we're, we're we're indoctrinated with that consciousness or lack thereof. And let me give you this, because Steve Biko, he grappled with this, the South African freedom fighter. Steve Biko said, the most potent weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. So it's not new. So, because what were they doing? Why was he saying that? Because there were black brothers who were being employed against other black <laughs> brothers and sisters to suppress them and to oppress them in apartheid South Africa. There have always been in this country, you know, the same phenomenon. Like I think about the, the incredible story that is told um, by Alex Haley and Roots. There's a reason why in that story, uh, when Kunta Kinte, right, the, 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 who represents the enslaved, um, captured uh, enslaved African comes and then they, they change his name. Um, and again, in the book, you know, it, it's more descriptive than the, obviously the, the, the series, but there's a black man who they hand the whip to. That's right. Right. There's a black man they whip to. This is the pathology of creating anti-blackness, even for black people, so that they can lose their own consciousness about who they are and also out of fear of, well, if I don't do this, you know, <laughs> it, might, it might be happening. It's going to be turned to me, right? That me. that whole Willie Lynch mentality of how to really, after Nat Turner and the Brothers Revolt in Virginia, then how are we going to control them? We'll start giving some a little bit more. Hey, I'm going to give you, I'm, I'm not going to make you eat the pig's feet. I might give you a little bacon. I might, you know, give you a mat rather than have you sleep on the floor. I might treat you. And then when you start doing it based on color of skin, hair, the same racism and anti-blackness that affects white America impacts black America. And we're directing it on ourselves. Yes. Oh. I mean, there's like, you just sparked another one for me. Like when I think about Fred Hampton, that self-preservation, right? <laughs> and fear of it, it when, when I'm in trouble and if I have the opportunity, you know, to not have that turn toward me, then and I have to do, you know, what I have to do for my own self-preservation. So that brother had a, a, somebody on his inner circle who gave them his whole layout so that they could assassinate him. I mean, the, the, these are the tactics that white supremacy have always been um, employing upon us and by and, and using people in ways, uh, again, but they also rely on what I'm saying, though, and that is, it, so if we talk about how these Black brothers in Memphis, you know, how could they do that, and then does race have anything to do with it? It is perfectly reasonable, based on our history and based on this notion of what Black is and what Black isn't, that they they could lose their consciousness even even if it was for that even for that thirty or whatever hundred minutes. My suspect it was for a lot longer than that because you don't go into a culture of policing and probably not already be somewhat not conscious around what what black is. And it, let me just finally say this other thing about black because I, I think it's important because even for black folk, oh man, brother, this is it's good. So there's an element to this even for us. Because I think I posted something, um, you know, um, about this whole thing too. My brain was going about humanity, right? Um, Anti-blackness is coupled with inhumanity. 
because, again, the consciousness around human beings, especially people with black, black and brown skin, also is the element that implicit association with them not being fully human. So not only is whiteness at play or anti-blackness, but there is a dehumanizing, dehumanizing quality to lead to even black folk doing that to themselves. And again, we saw the real life version, but think about John Singleton. I don't know how many years ago now with Boys in the Hood, where yep. the black cop pulls up and he got Cuba Gooding Jr. up against the car. And what does he do? He pulls out the gun and puts it in his face. And he, and of course he employs the N word and basically says, I can just end you without a thought. And it's that level of self-hate, the oh, hate no of anti-blackness, the the dehumanizing. I was thinking the same thing. Shout out to the homie Chuck D for every brother ain't a brother. Right? Mm, mm. Every brother ain't a brother, right? Mm, I mean, mm, I'm thinking of that from 19, what, 89? Mm. Um, welcome to the Terror Dome, right? Mm -hmm. um, and thinking through these processes and how in the white community, I think folks see black and think it's a skin thing. It, and like you said, That's right. it's a kin thing. That's right. right? Oh, that wasn't bad. That's that right. for us, it's a different feel. We know if we're navigating policing, the most brutal of overseers and of police are the brown ones. And once you become the police, you are the police. And mm -hmm. we navigate you like you're the police, period. Yeah. And this is why I think it needs to be renegotiated because when you put you, you put this out there again about human beings, the people who are saying that, I would probably surmise to say, have never been in a condition where their life was threatened by someone who actually has the power of the state. Because um, I ran from the police actually one time and I got away. They couldn't catch me. I was a younger brother. Fact at the time I was an all-state track, <laughs> you know, when I was in high school actually at the time, and, and 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 I ain't got no shame in saying, man. I mean, I use all of that athletic ability, and and it was a, it was a response, like you said, it was like, okay, I could stay here. They were coming at me, and they had already had their at that time. I mean, they had clubs, they had stuff out, and I made a decision, like I could try to explain that, hey, I didn't do anything, and take that whooping, or worse, or. I was like, you know what? They're just far enough away. I think I can get away. And I did. I outmaneuvered them. I ran for some block. I was dipping and diving. And the thing uh, is, like, I've been in that situation. So when people say that to me, I go, see, you've probably never been in that situation where your very life is a talk about they have a split, split second decision. So did I. I, I was like, you know what? Now, I'm not going to stay here. I, I, I'm going to run. And so my thing is, Based on what what, what you what you've been saying as far as this this concept of you know, and I've been saying about literacy and about really recognizing putting people in situations and thinking of, and thinking through these things. One of the things that I said to some a group of people just recently around what they can do um, is I said, you know, you got to contemplate what kind of conversations you're having with each other in white spaces too, because when you're getting literate probably one of the biggest things you can do 
from that vantage point is you got to start doing what some sisters and brothers are doing, our white brothers and sisters are doing in those spaces by saying, no, I'm going to talk to y'all. I'm going to talk to my family. I'm going to talk to people in these spaces about the literacy that's necessary for us to actually do more coalition building. And so, um, you know, and, I, you know, D'Angelo talks about that, how white folks can talk to white folks. And, and you know, and I know there's others who are doing them. Chris Crass is talking about, you know, who's a whiteness studies scholar who's doing a lot of that work. Um, but for me, um, as an educator, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, and then around policing particularly, I think we have to imagine, like, what is it, like you said, what is it like in your neighborhood? I asked some white people just recently, do you speed ever? Do you ever speed? And whether it's intentional or not. If you're honest, you probably speed. And sometimes you know you're speeding, right? You get caught. Do you ever think you get put over for speeding? Ever think they're going to shoot you? Or beat you? Or tase you? No, you probably ain't thinking that. That's that's how we have to right, start building this literacy. Like, give them these episodes that these things happen to everybody. But what's different is when it happened to people like you and me, like Adam and me, me and you, like when it happens, like the difference is we got the potential for it to go sideways real quick. And they have to, they have to start thinking about that kind of uh, literacy because it's not like white people don't get stopped and they don't, you know, go through red lights or they don't, you know, have traffic quote unquote violations or all of that. But it's the, the difference is they don't ever have to think about, wait a minute, this might mean my life. That's literacy to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it all starts with the space we're in, right? We created a space called Get Uncomfortable because this child of Black, German, Czechoslovakian folks know that we don't talk about certain things at family gatherings because we have the privilege to avoid uncomfortable. And it isn't until we create safe and powerful and uh, appropriate community where uncomfortable conversations start to become comfortable, that we can all work through all of these things. Dr. Barry, I thank you for sharing community, for sharing your wisdom, Black man. I appreciate you. As we always say, stay aware, stay woke, my brother. Thank you for being thank with you. us. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. My guy, it's always good to see you, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between Adam Smith and me, Rachel Hansen. There are a number of ways that you can support the show, and we would appreciate any support you could give. Uh, you can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can send us an email and our email addresses are in the show notes, or you can share an episode with a friend. This will help us to build community and promote true healing through uncomfortable conversations. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.